नमस्ते नमस्कारम वेलकम टू अनादर खूनी एपिसोड दिस इज अदिति एंड जॉइनिंग मी फ्रॉम अक्रॉस द टॉपिक ऑफ कैंसर इज स्नेहा हाई स्नेहा हाय अदिति हाय एवरीवन अदिति एंड आई आर सेपरेटेड बाय द टॉपिक ऑफ कैंसर बट यूनाइटेड इन आर लव ऑफ लेम एपिसोड ओपनिंग्स ऑल्सो रियली टॉपिक ऑफ कैंसर आई एम जस्ट ट्राइंग समथिंग न्यू anyway uh, the whole of last month we've talked about the mumbai mafia and the rise of daud ibrahim today we present our penultimate episode in that series where we are going to talk about the bombay blasts of 1993 so on 12th march 1993 12 serial blasts rocked mumbai between 1:30 pm and 3:40 pm on a friday afternoon The blasts were unlike anything India had witnessed before both in intensity and the scale of devastation. More than anything else the blasts had targeted Mumbai which was and continues to be the financial nerve center of India. 257 people lost their lives and about 1400 people were injured in the blasts and this is widely considered the first instance of homegrown terrorism in India. The D company was involved in the blast along with some other people all of whom we will discuss in this episode. D company's involvement was certainly a curious thing at that time. Now of course the mafia members were known for unspeakable acts of violence in the city. They killed with impunity. But the violence always had some self-interest be it commercial expansion or eliminating a rival or a witness or Daud's favorite revenge. Most of the violence was aimed at people within the mafia itself but the blasts were drastically different they were aimed at the city and they had been orchestrated with a different goal in mind so after researching the blasts aditi and i were convinced that it is not possible to cover them in isolation that is without discussing the events that influenced them the blasts may have happened in march 1993 but their genesis lies in another event that happened about 1500 kilometers away in a small town called ayodhya in uttar pradesh this event was the demolition of the babri masjid and was equally cataclysmic and so this is where we will start the sequence of events that eventually led to that devastating day in mumbai Before we begin we want to quickly talk about our sources uh, we've relied on two main government sources the report of the Liberhan Ayodhya Commission which was set up to inquire into the Babri Masjid demolition and the riots thereafter and this uh, Shri Krishna Commission report which looked into the Bombay riots and blasts specifically we want to clarify that the Shri Krishna Commission report was not accepted by government of Maharashtra that commissioned it due to political vested interests but we have relied on the sequence of events that it states because you know those were gathered mm-hmm. after intense inquiries other than that uh, we have referred to Hussain Zaidi's excellent book on Mumbai blasts called Black Friday and all relevant media reports uh, all of which we will link in our show notes as always We are going to take our cue from Hussein Zaidi himself and begin our story in Dubai in early 
So by now you all already know that Daud had left India and he made himself comfortable in Dubai. He lived in his mansion, he called it the White House and he hobnobbed with the who's who of the world, you know, the politicians, actors, businessmen, all that jazz. He recruited a loyal group of people, some of whom came from Bombay, his old home, who helped him run his operation uh, in India smoothly. Overall life was good for Daud but in late 1992 and 1993 things were changing back home in India and in Bombay and Daud despite being far removed from the conflict was deeply and personally affected by it December 6 1992 was a shock to the people of India early in the morning at about 6 a.m. hordes of terrorists calling themselves Karsevaks attacked the Babri Masjid in Ayodhya which is a small town in Uttar Pradesh it took them about 6 hours to demolish the mosque and then as if this wasn't enough the very same evening they unleashed a horrific anti-muslim pogrom in the town so for context the Babri Masjid was built in 1527 by Babur's general Mir Baki For those who are not familiar with Indian history, Babur was the man who would start the Mughal dynasty which would rule India till the British came. The mosque built by the general was always a you know contentious issue and local Hindus believe that Mir Baki built the mosque by demolishing a Hindu temple on that spot. Similar claims have also been made by the Buddhist and Jain communities in India. Adding to the sensitivity of the issue is the claim that this was the very site that the Hindu deity Ram was actually born. Now Ram is a highly revered figure among some section of Hindus and he has always been associated with Ayodhya but that being said there is no way to realistically prove that Ram was born at the exact same spot as the mosque. but this highly tenuous claim was the justification for the hundreds of karsevaks who had been mobilizing in ayodhya since the beginning of december 1992 this also had been the justification for the almost year long communal campaign by lk adwani adwani was a member of the bharti janata party or the bjp at the time So today BJP is the strongest political party in India and enjoys a brute majority in the parliament. It won the popular mandate for a second time in 2019 and also is part of several state governments not surprisingly UP being one of them. But back in 1992 BJP was a fledgling party desperately looking for an agenda that would be their ticket to becoming a national party. This came in the form of the Ram Janmabhoomi movement. Back in the mid 1980s, the average Hindu, especially those living outside Ayodhya, really didn't care much about the Babri Masjid issue. Yeah, oh and uh, by the way, before we get attacked on our socials <laughs> about being Hindu phobic or whatever, this isn't our personal hot take. This was the conclusion of retired Justice Manmohan Singh Lebahan, who headed the Lebahan Ayodhya Commission to look into the Babri Masjid demolition. Yeah, I mean, God forbid we express some personal opinions on a podcast that we created. Yeah, how dare we? Of course. Anyway, so <laughs> as Neha was saying, Babri Masjid was not a popular issue till about the mid-1980s. 
there had been hindu muslim clashes over the site before india got independence but for about 30 odd years till 1984 the larger public was not super concerned with it ayodhya was sort of peaceful and hindus and muslims coexisted you know side by side mm-hmm. In 1984 a militant Hindu right wing organization which is my fancy way of saying a Hindu terrorist organization <laughs> called the Vishwa Hindu Parishad first raised the idea of a Ram Janmabhoomi movement meaning a movement for Ram's birthplace they organized religious assemblies where basically Hindu men were incited on communal lines The point of their rhetoric was to shame Hindu men who did not care about an invaders sorry The point of their rhetoric was to shame all the Hindu men who didn't care about an invaders mosque on their holy land That's what they reduced all Muslims to outsiders and invaders It's a burden that Muslims of India have really never been able to shake off and this burden has only intensified since 2014 when BJP formed majority in the parliament. Anyway, back to 1990, uh, LK Advani embarked on the, his famous Rath Yatra. So Rath means chariot and Yatra means journey. Advani's public motive for the Rath Yatra was to raise awareness about the Ram Janmabhoomi issue. but from the very beginning you could see that this was a highly communally charged ruse he flagged off the rath yatra from a temple uh, in somnath in gujarat so this somnath was very carefully selected there was a shiv temple that had existed at somnath since about 6 centuries ce but over the years it had been demolished several times by arab invaders and it was rebuilt over and over again The last time it was demolished was under the reign of Aurangzeb who was a Mughal ruler in 1665. The temple as it stands today was built after independence and to many Hindus the stories of Somnath temple and others like it are told as a cautionary tale right and mm-hmm. growing up you don't yeah. realize that you're being subliminally radicalized or you're being asked to be angry over something that happened centuries ago or that you're asked to vilify your fellow muslim despite the fact that they are blameless but advani you know he capitalized on this sentiment in his book my country my life uh, advani writes the choice of somnath as the starting point of the yatra had a powerful symbolic value made evident by repeated references to it as a target of muslim tyranny against hindus The intention was to contextualize Ayodhya and the historical lineage of Muslim aggression and then to seek legitimacy for the Mandir movement by drawing a parallel. The parallel the Sangh Parivar drew was with the reconstruction of the Somnath temple. So even if at this time the idea was sort of nebulous, you can see that these people had an end game in sight and this becomes important later. As the Rath Yatra progressed from Somnath, it left a trail of blood behind it. Everywhere Advani went, communal riots followed, which is hardly a coincidence given the provocative speeches that were being given and the violent imagery being used. Okay, so for example, display of Trishul and posters of a fully constructed Ram Mandir at the very site a mosque still existed. Advani was finally stopped in Bihar by the then Chief Minister Lalu Prasad Yadav, who arrested him at Samastipur. But by then, the damage was done. 
फॉर द फर्स्ट टाइम हिंदूज आउटसाइड ऑफ अयोध्या और यूपी एक्चुअली केयर अबाउट एन ऑब्जिक्योर मॉस्क विच हैड मेड जीरो डिफरेंस टू देयर लाइफ अप टिल दैट पॉइंट द विश्व हिंदू परिषद एंड इट्स कनेक्टेड ऑर्गेनाइजेशन लाइक द बजरंग दल अलॉन्ग विद द बीजेपी आस्ट फॉर वॉलंटियर्स फ्रॉम द मासिस दीज वॉलंटियर्स व कॉल्ड कर सेवक्स सो द वर्ड एक्चुअली साउंड वेरी इनोसेंट बट इट लिटरली मीन्स अ पर्सन who donates labor the point is to donate your labor for the benefit of your fellow human but these karsevaks were being recruited with a more nefarious goal in mind on october 6 1991 the vishwa hindu parishad organized a massive training camp for a month near ahmedabad the people who participated came from all over the country they were given martial arts training how to break police barricades and minor weapons training also you know like firing an air gun it was attended by high level functionaries from the parishad so the idea was that the trainees would go back to their homes and conduct similar training camps for locals so although vhp later denied that this was a part of ayodhya the question that needs to be asked is why was this needed in the first place there were reports of similar camps being organized in parts across the country karsevaks had begun trickling in from all over the country to ayodhya from december 1st 1992 there were so many of them that a whole encampment had to be set up in ayodhya so we use the word encampment deliberately okay because this was an army who had come with the sole purpose of invasion and destruction they were marauders and nothing else they also came prepared with tools like hammers pickaxes crowbars iron rods you know all those they knew they were coming to destroy the mosque this fact is quite important because after the demolition bjp would claim that the demolition was not preplanned that it was the result of mob frenzy but the liberhand commission never agreed with this lie neither did the journalists who were present on ground in the days before the demolition mark tully a veteran bbc journalist was present in ayodhya as well and he has recounted anti press feelings among the karsevaks before the demolition he recounted how they broke cameras because they didn't want the event recorded or any pictures taken how journalists were rounded up and forcibly confined in a dharmshala only they were rescued by the crpf later other journalists especially muslim ones talk about having to use hindu aliases to pr- protect themselves the demolition of the 400 year old mosque was followed by a wave of anti muslim violence unleashed upon the city thousands of people died most of whom were muslim the police simply abandoned their posts no real attempt was made to curb or control the rioters The violence spread from Ayodhya to several parts of India including to Mumbai. This brings us to the Bombay riots of 1992 and 1993. So the Bombay riots happened in two phases. The first coincided with a spate of violence immediately following the demolition of Babri Masjid in December 1992. Once the news of the demolition became national Several Muslims came out to protest against the ghastly attack all over India including on the streets of Bombay on 6th and 7th December. 
they were primarily angry at the state machinery for failing so spectacularly to protect the life and liberty of India's Muslim citizens. The anger was not just at how the mosque was allowed to be demolished, but also at the way this Hindu mob was allowed to rampage over Muslim lives in Ayodhya. This anger was further intensified by the way the demolition was being celebrated by certain Hindus all over India, because that was happening. This was, of course, fanned by right-wing parties. Maharashtra had its own militant Hindu party called the Shiv Sena. The leader of Shiv Sena was Bal Thakre, and Bal Thakre had supported the call for Ram Janmabhumi at the time, all the way from Maharashtra. So it was no surprise that while BJP was milking the communal discord in the north, Shiv Sena was doing the same thing in Maharashtra, especially Bombay. For instance, there was a celebration rally that was organized by them on the 6th in Dharavi area in Mumbai. This was, sorry, this brazen humiliation and the fact that it was allowed by state machinery that was supposed to protect them caused a lot of resentment among Muslims and that is what they were protesting against. I just want to pause here and mention that India has very specific legislative protections against this sort of thing destroying, defiling, or damaging a place of worship with the intention of insulting a particular religion is a penal offense under Indian Penal Code under Section 295. Under Section 295A, outraging the religious feelings of any community, either verbally or in writing or by signs, with deliberate and malicious intent is also a penal offense. And India has very specific legislation prohibiting destruction of places of worship as well. This should tell you something about the state of our country, that we have to put in such specific protections to prevent religious violence. And fail so spectacularly despite these safeguards, so-called safeguards. Yep, yep, failing spectacularly is accurate. The law I mention is the Places of Worship Act 1991, which preserves status quo of all religious places in India as on 15th August 1947, which is the day India got its independence from the British. But we should mention that it created one single exception for the Babri Masjid. You would think that this brazen act of pro-Hindu majoritarianism would have made BJP very happy, <laughs> but they were outraged, calling it an act of pseudo-secularism because the law was passed by, I think, Congress government. Yeah. Sneha, uh, would you like to tell people why BJP would be outraged? Because Babri Masjid was supposed to be the first of many mosques that the BJP, VHP and their ilk sought to demolish. There is yeah. one at Banaras, there's another one in Mathura, and God knows how many more. Exactly. They were angry that the law was passed at all because it clashed with their grand designs. Not that these people have ever cared for the law of the land, mind you. A mere yeah. legislation is not going to stop them. Anyway, no. oh. let's not go down that route. Let's just come back, come back to the Bombay riots. <laughs> <laughs> So we were talking about building resentment among Muslims and how they were protesting in Bombay. The Sri Krishna Commission notes that initially on the 6th, the protesters were not armed. But their rage was not directed, sorry, their rage was not directed towards other Hindus, but at the state for failing to do their duty in Ayodhya. At this time itself, the police would have calmed protesters down and diffused the situation. But instead, they choose to respond aggressively. 
they attack the protesters with wooden sticks you know or lathis as we call them and eventually shot at them also simultaneously we mentioned that bjp vhp shiv sena and all were celebrating and gloating all over the city which they were allowed to do by the police remember protesting peaceably is not a crime but intentionally inciting communal hatred is that is why we mentioned section 295a but the police did not do enough to stop them sri krishna committee notes a latent anti muslim bias among policemen by 7th december the situation had transformed muslim anger and resentment finally manifested in physical violence first towards the police and then eventually towards hindus hindus too were riled up by this point mostly because bjp vhp shiv sena people were on the ground actively going around inciting and fighting muslim mobs were attacking temples and and hindu mobs were attacking mosques and madarsas in mumbai a lot of public property was also damaged and plus there was indiscriminate arson and looting from homes on 7th and 8th police was firing sorry on 7th and 8th the police was firing back at the mob but it was quickly noticed that more muslims died by police firing than hindus for example on the 7th the police fired on 72 occasions killing 20 hindus and 72 muslims and injuring 131 muslims and one other so this pattern would continue the next day as well this is one of the early indicators that muslims were being targeted specifically by the police however we should mention that the sri krishna commission takes into account the statement from the police commissioner of maharashtra at that time who justified the larger muslim numbers by saying that the mobs largely comprised of muslims hence they suffered more casualties okay uncle <laughs> so one other thing is that in such cases normally police are supposed to fire below the waist but several bullet wounds especially on muslim victims were found to be above their waist so now again you can either attribute it to police bias or as the sri krishna commission also notes one can argue that firing at moving targets in a mob situation is very different from controlled settings and it is not always possible to aim below the waist the sri krishna commission gives the benefit of doubt to mumbai police in this particular instance by around 12th december 1992 the situation had somewhat calmed down although tensions continued to simmer between the two communities from 12th december towards the end of the year there were several scattered acts of violence all over bombay there was no doubt that bjp vhp shiv sena etc were fanning communal sentiments and inciting hindus against muslims on one particular friday the size of crowds offering namaz was larger than usual so even though nothing untoward was reported from this gathering this was hyped up a lot and all these right wing hindus made it look like this was some deliberate show of strength by the muslim community and so to counter hindus started performing maha aartis all over mumbai in direct conflict with friday prayers aarti is a ritual that is supposed to be you know pious and cleansing and this was practically weaponized by hindutvavadis the frequency of these maha aartis increased all throughout december january and february 
at all these gatherings inflammatory speeches were given and hindus were told that muslims are their enemy over and over and over again so essentially you're saying that they were radicalization camps right i mean that's that's the definition yeah that's exactly what they were Uh, so in addition to the maharti there was also a spate of violent attack on sorry so uh, along with the mahartis there were also a spate of violent attacks on both hindus and muslims in bombay the shri krishna commission notes that in the last week of december and first week of january there were stabbings in certain areas where majority of victims were hindus although the criminals who carried out the stabbings were never identified by the police and there were rumors that two criminals called Salim Rampuri and Feroz Konkani were behind the incidents so this became public knowledge and this served to inflame tempers even more hindus didn't bother that they were criminals they only concentrated on their muslimness On 1st January 1993 as the rest of the world celebrated the new year an uneasy and fragile peace in Bombay was about to go kaput Shiv Sena in its mouthpiece Samna exhorted Hindus to become aggressive as well in response to what it perceived was Muslim wrath On 6th January 1993 there was another round of stabbings in Dongri Paidhani VP Road and Nagpada mostly Muslim areas Most of the stabbings occurred in isolated lanes and by lanes and by the time police arrived on the scene the miscreants would all vanish. In all 18 cases of stabbing were reported by the evening of this day of which 8 were from Paidhani, 2 from Dharavi, 2 from BP Road and 2 from Nagpada and one each from Nirmalnagar, Kherwadi and Andheri. These stabbings resulted in the deaths of one Hindu, one Muslim and two others being killed and 13 Hindus, one Muslim and one other being injured. Mob violence accounted for the deaths of seven Hindus and one Muslim and injuries to nine and nine Hindus and eight Muslims. Once again the perpetrators of the stabbing were never identified. No one really knows if the Hindus were attacked by Muslims or even vice versa, but Hindus believed that the attackers were Muslims over and above police denials. The same day at about 9 p.m. in the night a large Hindu mob led by Shiv Sena cooperator Milind Vaidya attacked Muslims in Mahim. By the way Vaidya was accompanied by a man called Sanjay Gavde who was a police constable no less. They Great. were seen carrying around swords. With this the Bombay riots had officially entered phase 2. There were several incidents of stabbing, arson, attacks on police, looting, etc. all over Mumbai on 7th January 1993. On 8th January, a ghastly incident occurred at the Radhabai Chawl located in Jogeshwari. Some of the residences were logged from the outside and set on fire. Six people lost their lives and three more were injured. All of them were Hindus. Now no one knew who was responsible for this act. 3 years later in 1996, 11 Muslims would be convicted for this crime, but their convictions would be reversed by the Supreme Court in 1998. But at this point at least, it was not known that the miscreants were Muslim, but the moment this incident became public and it became public really fast, everyone assumed that the perpetrators must have been Muslim because the victims were Hindu. It was reported in the media with incendiary headlines. Many riot apologists among Hindus sometimes take this incident as the reason for the brutal backlash that would follow from the Hindus. 
but that is just as but that is just good old gaslighting you know to be honest between 8th january and 20th january the violence raged mercilessly there were incidents of arson stabbings rape murder lynchings reported from all over the city on 12th jan in a gruesome incident a 19 year old girl was sexually assaulted and her uncle who had rushed out onto the street to rescue her were both burnt alive in the middle of the street hindus were named as perpetrators named by a hindu lady incidentally but they were acquitted later on after 20th january stray incidents of violence were reported from certain localities in mumbai but things were slowly calming down but at the end of the violence 900 people were dead of these 575 were muslim and 275 were hindus and 45 were unknown and 5 belonged to other religions the cause of death was evenly split between police firings and stabbings the riots also caused mass exodus of muslims from various pockets of mumbai many of them had to opt for distant sales of their homes they sold their properties at highly reduced prices some of them went back to their home states hoping to come back when things went back to normal while others sought safety in numbers and migrated to areas with a really large muslim population like mumbra one of the many muslim establishments that were gutted in the arsenal during the riots was an accountancy firm in mahim al tejarat international The owner of the firm was a young bright man named Yakub. Yakub grew up with his brothers on Muhammad Ali Road. Yakub's father Abdul had been a sportsman in his time, a cricketer. Hussein Zaidi writes in his book about how Abdul once played with Tiger Patodi in a league match and everyone started calling him Tiger after that. Wow, okay, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, despite his talents, Abdul did not hold a steady job and had trouble supporting his family of seven children, all boys. Yakub's older brothers had already taken up work right after school. One of these brothers was Mushtaq. Mushtaq had been a cricket prodigy just like his father, but he was also temperamental and arrogant. It cost him his first job at a bank. In the early 1980s, Mushtaq had found work as a chauffeur for two brothers, Mustafa Dosa and Muhammad Dosa. The Dosa brothers were smugglers and they found a dependable and resourceful driver in Mushtaq. Once while driving an important smuggler in his car, they were chased by the police. The big time smuggler panicked and asked Mushtaq to take him to the airport immediately from where he would take the next flight to Dubai. Mushtaq kept his cool, deftly maneuvered through narrow lanes and bylanes and got the smuggler on time to the airport, who was extremely grateful and highly impressed with Mushtaq. Soon enough, Mushtaq was asked to come to Dubai and join their operation. His main job was to be a gold carrier for smuggling. So Mushtaq thrived in Dubai and because of him, so did his family back home in Bombay. Yakub benefited a lot from this as well because he was the studious one in the family and Mushtaq made sure that Yakub got the best education he could afford. Yakub was the golden boy of the family. He became a chartered accountant and he soon opened his new firm. He got married and had been living a comfortable life until the Bombay riots happened and gutted his office. During the riots, 
the family decided to move to Dubai to be with Mushtaq. They had left with heavy hearts, thinking that there was no way they could come back to Bombay again after the pogrom they had seen. However, Mushtaq, a.k.a. Ibrahim Mushtaq Abdul Razak Memon, a.k.a. Tiger Memon, was soon to turn their lives upside down. So Mushtaq inherited the name Tiger from his father the day he got married. That was the first time relatives of the Memon family and the family themselves got to see firsthand just how influential Mushtaq really was. He had had a meteoric rise in Dubai and he had become Daud Ibrahim's right-hand man. As the Babri Masjid fell in Ayodhya and a bloody anti-Muslim pogrom raged all over the country, including in his own hometown, and the police did nothing to protect the lives of Muslims or actively targeted them, Daud was growing restless in Dubai. Hussein Zaidi writes in his book that there was a certain section of Muslims in Mumbai who looked up to Daud as their saviour. And as much as I respect the author, I honestly don't think we can be so reductive about how any section of Muslims in Mumbai feel about mm-hmm. Daud, right? Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I agree. But there was a growing sentiment among at least Daud's employees that he needed to step up and avenge Muslims in India. There is this particularly significant event that Hussein Zaidi describes in the book Black Friday. Daud is sitting in his office and he is going about his business as per usual. He has heard about the demolition and the subsequent riots and the indiscriminate loss of Muslim lives and property and he is distressed. But he is also removed from it in Dubai. And then he receives a package. He's already gotten two packages like this in the past and it looks like he already knows what it contains. So all his employees are surrounding him, they're sitting in the room and they can make, sorry, and they can sense his embarrassment. He's reluctant to open the package in front of everyone. So his right-hand man, Chota Shakil, takes the cue. He immediately orders everybody to vacate the room, then takes the packet from Daud and opens it. Red and green glass bangles tumble onto the table. There's a message in Urdu as well, and it says, Jo bhai behen ki hifazat nahi kar sakte, mubarak. A gift of bangles for brothers who do not protect their sisters. Daud is incensed. An idea which has so far remained nebulous now begins to take firm shape. So if you're Indian, you already know why this was the ultimate insult, but if not, allow us to explain. Bangles are worn by in- women in India and they're like a feminine symbol. When men don't conform to the traditional male stereotype of hypermasculinity or, you know, in somebody's opinion, they act cowardly, they're often told, Chudia pehenlo or go wear bangles. I hate this. I hate this so much. I hate, I hate Indian cis <laughs> men. Oh God, <laughs> yuck too. Yeah. I'm, I'm just very, very disgusted right now, but yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a patriarchal thing to say. Yeah. You equate yeah. women with cowardice and then you encourage toxic masculinity. But uh, this is the phrase and this is why Daud was enraged. So this is a compelling story and it may offer some insight into Daud's actions later, but it is also sort of disputed. I mean, this incident is also mentioned in Rakesh Maria's uh, autobiography, Let Me Say It Now. And he feels this, sorry, and he feels that this 
may or may not have happened i mean there is no way of confirming <laughs> yeah. if muslim women really sent daud bangles to insult him or goad him into action and maria also wonders if the isi was behind it so isi is pakistan's intelligence agency like uh, raw is in india or the cia is in the us i'm only clarifying for non indian listeners here if you're indian you already know what isi isi is <laughs> So as we said earlier a nebulous idea had begun to take shape in Daud's mind the nebulous idea was not just Daud's by the way as Hussein Zaidi writes in the book Babri Masjid demolition had enraged people internationally there was a general consensus that some drastic measure was needed a meeting is mentioned with people from different nationalities assembling in a building in Dubai along with Tiger Memon all kinds of measures are suggested oil embargo assassinations of adwani or thakre and finally tiger suggested the attack on mumbai mumbai was chosen for obvious reasons it is the financial capital of india it would garner international attention any attack on mumbai would paralyze the economy it was also highly populated and perhaps the most important reason of all Mumbai had seen the worst anti-Muslim violence in this period after Ayodhya itself. Like we mentioned earlier, out of the 900 people who perished in the Bombay riots, 575 were Muslims. Now, let's fast forward to 12th March 1993. It was a busy Friday afternoon. Office goers in Bombay were about to start their lunch hour. The first blast happened at the Bombay Stock Exchange at 1:28 p.m. The bomb was so powerful that the impact was felt up to the 10th floor of the building and the area outside where food vendors and people eating lunch were instantly killed. Tremors could be felt as far as 300 meters away. 84 people died and 217 were injured in this blast. The Joint Commissioner of Police, Mahesh Narayan Singh, reached the spot at about 2 p.m. He immediately organized search and rescue for survivors and ordered crowd control. By this time, the fire department also arrived and started ferrying the injured to nearby hospitals. People had barely come to grips with the devastation caused by this blast when a second bomb blast exploded in Katha Bazar near Masjid Bandar at 2:15 p.m. This was a typical Indian wholesale market with narrow lanes and crowded streets. In terms of damage to human life, this was significantly less damaging. 5 people lost their lives and 16 were injured. Exactly 10 minutes later at 2:25 p.m., a car bomb exploded near the Air India building near Nariman Point. The sound of the blast could be heard 2 and a half kilometers away all the way up to Ballard Pier. third blast killed 20 people and left 87 injured it seemed like a morbid series puzzle you know the timeline of the blasts mm-hmm. 130 215 225 45 minutes apart then 10 minutes apart then 5 minutes apart later a fourth bomb exploded at 230 pm at dadar just outside the offices of shiv sena The blast was close to a petrol pump because of which the area was quickly engulfed in angry flames. This killed 4 people and injured 50. The fact that a bomb had exploded right outside Shiv Sena's office was vital. 
we have mentioned how shiv sena actively incited and participated in the carnage against muslims during bombay riots so this was the first indication of a link between the riots and the blasts at 2:25 pm a double decker best bus exploded right outside the regional passport office at worli Hussein Zaidi writes that the blast was so powerful that it lifted the five-ton bus into the air, and Damn. the upper deck broke away from the main body and crashed into the Nehru Nagar colony, literally raining chunks of metal on the residents. It was insane. Everyone on the bus died, as did a lot of people on that street and in the nearby buildings and vehicles. In all, 113 people died and 227 were injured. At 2:45 p.m., there were reports that grenades had also been thrown at Fisherman's Colony in Mahim. Three people had died. Now, this was a predominantly Hindu area. The news of attack outside Shiv Sena office had already spread, and rumors were circulating that the blasts were targeting uh, Hindus, and that this was a Muslim conspiracy. Bombay police were now faced with the possibility of a communal riot on top of the worsening blast situation. The DIG of Mumbai Central, Yadav Rao Pawar and his deputy Rakesh Maria were two officers who sensed it immediately. The Shiv Sena members were already sloganeering outside their office in Dadar right after the blast even though nobody in the Shiv Sena building had gotten hurt. The Fisherman's Colony in Mahim was also brewing with communal tension. So Hindus were outraged and they were targeting innocent Muslims in their vicinity. Maria reached Shiv Sena Bhavan first and he told the leader of the mob to shut it down basically. He told them that the blasts were not communally motivated. Uh Zaidi writes that at this time Maria wasn't so sure of this himself but he felt that it was better to lie than risk another pogrom. Pawar on the other hand was at the Fisherman's Colony in Mahim to defuse the rapidly escalating situation there. Hindus were enraged after the grenade attack and they were not backing down despite police presence. They surrounded a school bus of the Arjumande Islam which was a boys school. There were kids inside and things looked really really bad. So Pawar immediately ordered lathi charge on the attackers and the cl- crowd finally dissipated. Maria too reached the spot and he noticed that an irate mob had captured a best bus. and they were dragging people out and beating them up he raised his pistol and fired a shot in the air the mob which thus far had largely been ignoring the police presence caught the hint and dispersed the victims were taken to nearby hospitals the sixth blast would target one of bombay's busiest markets called the zaveri bazaar where a taxi exploded at about 3:05 pm This blast killed 17 people and injured 57. At 3:15 p.m., the Plaza Cinema at Dadar collapsed with a bang. This was the seventh explosion which took lives of 10 people who were inside the cinema hall and injured 37. Just 5 minutes later, at 3:20 p.m., Hotel Sea Rock in Bandra was gutted by the eighth blast. Thankfully, no one died here. There were two more blasts at the Juhu Centaur and the Airport Centaur at 3:25 p.m. and 3:35 p.m. At 3:30 p.m., hand grenades were thrown at Sahar Airport. In total, 12 blasts happened that afternoon in a span of 2 hours. In total, 250 people died and almost 700 were injured. The blasts had also caused 
crores in property damage so obviously the biggest question now is motive was it revenge for the riots as a lot of people were claiming or was this an act of war was it terrorism so normally in a terrorist attack some organization comes out and takes responsibility for it which did not happen with the blast even though many thought that the mumbai mafia may have had a hand in the blast it had seemed like a you know ludicrous suggestion at that point given the scale and intensity of the blast and the kind of explosives used it seemed unlikely that any mafia boss in mumbai would have the resources to kind of pull this off the thing is at every blast site high intensity explosives had been used in large amounts when bomb detection and disposal squad arrived at bombay stock exchange after the first blast the epicenter of the blast had been a car parked in the basement of the stock exchange nand kumar chaugule who had headed the bomb squad at that time estimated that there must have been 40 to 50 kg of rdx in the blast alone whoa wow okay yeah A similar car bomb setup had been used in the Air India building blast as well. Chaugule noticed that the bomb had been powerful enough to create a crater which was about 7 feet deep and 10 feet in diameter beneath the car. Here again about 45 kg of RDX was estimated to be used. At about 9 pm in the night, Chaugule was informed about an abandoned car in Wardley parked near the Siemens factory. When the car was investigated they found two black rexine bags in the back of the car the bomb squad brought their vanero labrador retriever which had been especially trained to detect to detect explosives i think this was the only bright spot in my research for this episode <laughs> the dog <laughs> yeah the dog's name was zanjeer and it became bit of it became a bit of a hero after the blasts if i'm not mistaken Aww. i think yeah if i'm not mistaken this was the first time the bombay police were using a dog to sniff explosives they had had dogs for crime scenes and all but there never had been an occasion to use a dog for sniffing out bombs and he was such a good boy you know <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Zanjeer died in 2000 from bone cancer and his funeral was held with full state honors. I mean, so he was very well loved. Anyway, so Zanjeer was brought in to see if the bags had any explosives in them and sure enough, they did. Thankfully, neither the car doors nor the zippers of the bags were wired to detonate. The bags contained hand grenades, empty magazines, live cartridges and 5 AK-56 rifles. The registration papers of the car were in the glove compartment. Seriously? Like seriously? So you're telling me whoever did this, okay, planned all of this. 12 bomb blasts across Bombay with clockwork precision and then just left a car laden with explosives in the middle of Warley with the goddamn registration papers inside. Yeah, yeah. Someone's stupidity was the luckiest break for the police. Hold on to this information. We'll circle back to this. Uh for now we just want to quickly talk about the developments in the investigation right after the blasts. On 14th March, uh which was a Sunday, Rakesh Maria received word about an abandoned scooter at Nigam Cross Road at Dadar. The locals had informed the police that the scooter had been standing there for a couple of days and no one had claimed it so far. So Maria's first thought was 
bomb. The bomb squad was called and of course Zanjeer came with them. And once again, like a good boy, he sniffed and confirmed that there were explosives in the boot of the scooter. The bomb squad defused the bomb. Uh, it, the bomb was rigged with about 15 kgs of RDX. Uh, according to the bomb squad, the only reason the bomb had not detonated was because the person who made the bomb had been a little careless while assembling it. So there were some issues with the trigger. On Sunday itself, Maria would come to know about the owner of the car that had been parked at Verley. The car belonged to someone called Mrs. Rubina Suleiman Memon, who lived in the Al Husseini building at Dargah Road in Mahim. The car had not been reported stolen, so Maria decided to track down the owner. When they visited the Al Husseini building, they were told by the other residents that the entire family had left uh, for Dubai. Only one member had stayed behind till Thursday or late uh, hours of Friday. Uh, Tiger Bhai. And this was the police's first clue linking the blasts to the Mumbai underworld. Rubina was Suleiman's wife, who was Tiger's older brother. When they raided the flat, they found their second clue linking the Memons to the blast. A scooter key was found inside the flat, which belonged to the same scooter Maria had found earlier rigged with explosives. While talking to Memin's neighbours, who were more than eager to help, he found out the name of Memin's manager, who was a frail young man by the name of Asghar Mukaddam. So, Mukaddam was brought in late at night. At first, when he was questioned, Asghar denied any knowledge about the blasts. But later, Asghar was subjected to what we in India call the third degree. In simple words, this is basic custodial torture, uh, the police resort to extract confessions or gain information. So this practice is widespread even today and it goes on mainly because there is a severe lack of uh, institutional accountability from the side yeah. of the police. And this happens even when a confession uh, extracted via coercion is not admissible in courts as evidence. So the police always deny using this tactic, but in this case, Asghar claims that he was definitely tortured. And given the police's history, we are inclined to believe him. But Asghar revealed some crucial information to the police. The police knew that Tiger Memon was a smuggler, even though he was really not known to Maria at the time. Asghar talked about the Hawala accounts Memon had. He talked about how Memon had been planning something for Bombay and how Asghar had gone to get Tiger's boarding pass before they left to Dubai in the wee hours of Friday morning, the day of the blast. He also reported that he had seen Memon's men loading weapons and explosives in cars and scooters at about 5 a.m. in the morning on Friday at the Al Husseini building. The next day, on 15th March, that is Monday, the bomb squad received reports of abandoned scooters again. Zanjeer saved the day again. Good boy, good boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, on 15th, so on the 15th, three scooter bombs were defused by the bomb squad, one in the vicinity of their own office on Dhanji Street. The bombs contained RDX and gelatine and were rigged with a pencil timer. Over the next few days, everyone, sorry, anyone even remotely connected with Memon was rounded up at the Mahim police station and they were all subjected to custodial violence to get information. By 23rd March, 12 people had been booked under India's notorious anti-terrorism law, TADA, or Terrorism and Disruptive Activities 
Prevention Act. Also on 23rd March, the BDDS got a tip about the cache of explosives found on the staircase of Imani Manzil at Zaveri Bazaar. Once again, the BDDS reached the area with Zanjeer. There were two suitcases near the staircase. Zanjeer sniffed them once and walked around a bit. He sniffed the suitcases for a second longer time. He didn't bark thrice like he was trained to. He left out a he let out a whimper and a short bark. Chaugale, who was at the scene, realized that something was throwing the dog off. He carefully brought both the suitcases out in the open and unzipped them. Both contained AK-56 rifles, which were both empty. One of the suitcases also contained several magazines. While this all was going on, Chaugale was informed about suspicious piles of suitcases left abandoned near the Siddhi Vinayak temple on a handcart. This was just a five-minute walk from where they were, so they reached the spot fairly quickly. As soon as Zanjeer was taken to the handcart, he sniffed and barked just like he had been trained. Sure enough, the suitcases randomly piled on top of the handcart contained explosives. There were grenades in each of them. They were green hand grenade sorry, they were green hand grenades marked Argus 69. The suitcases also contained more AK-56 rifles, pencil timers, 0.9M caliber pistols and 0.308 cartridges. On 26th March 1993, the police received information about a massive stash of RDX in a building in the Mumbra area. The informant was Yeba Yakub, who had been named in the blast by several people who had earlier been questioned about them. Yakub cooperated with the police from time to time. When the police were first looking for leads, Yeba Yakub had been contacted as well and he had given them some names. But the, when the police looked into the leads, they turned out to be a dud. So, to mount pressure on him, Maria first arrested his brother and then later his brother's wife. I guess arrest here would probably be the wrong word because that's a specific legal procedure. Maria like just took two people into custody without any paperwork, sort of like an intimidation measure. So like we said before, these types of tactics are very common with the police. And both of them were tortured in custody. And this is highly illegal and underhanded trick. And this was used to sort of pressurize Yeba Yakub to give more substantial information about the blast. Yakub had no choice but to relent. He told the police about the sacks of Kala Sabun or RDX in Mumbra. His information was highly specific and turned out to be true. As soon as Zanjeer was taken near the sacks piled up in the building, he barked, indicating the presence of RDX. In total, 1034 kg of RDX and 574 kg of gelatin were recovered. Then, on 30th March, another stash of RDX and gelatin was found dumped in a creek near Nagla village in Thane. And these were connected to the earlier haul from Mumbra because the bags had a distinctive blue circle mark which were also present on the sacks from Mumbra. Plus the bags were all numbered and sort of serially fell within the range of the Mumbra haul. So it was clear massive amounts of RDX, gelatin and arms had been brought into Mumbai. And now the police had to figure out how exactly such large shipments of ammunition could be brought into Mumbai without raising any alarm bells. 
As investigations proceeded, the full picture began to emerge before the police. The arms and explosives had actually been brought into India directly at Raigarh, which is a port. Tiger Memin had used the same logistics that he always used while smuggling other goods into India. He had delegated this task to his trusted landing agents. Uh, their names were Fanse, Parker and Laundrywala. Fanse had bribed all the right officers in the customs department and they'd also identified the boatmen who would be used to ferry the shipment to the shore. And by the way, the customs department had been tipped off about the weapons landing in Mumbai. One of the boatmen that Panse had hired had snitched to customs. The customs officials had set up an ambush as well, but the landings in those days did not follow a very set schedule and shipments could be delayed for a variety of reasons. And it so happened that on the days that the custom officers set up the ambush, the explosives shipment did not land. So the shipment finally landed on 4th February. Tiger was staying in a hotel in Mumbai at the time. He collected 16 men, one of the men indeed, sorry, he collected 16 men, one of whom was Yeba Yakub, the man whose brother and sister-in-law had been detained and tortured by Maria in March. Now, all the goods were carried back to Bombay in jeeps. And the goods were hidden uh, under false bottoms on the floor of the jeeps, right? This was a trick that Tiger had learned mm-hmm. from his smuggling operation. Uh, because trucks were conspicuous and they could be noted and they would be checked by the police. But jeeps were less so. And he was right. All the RDX, the gelatin, detonators, grenades, the AK-56 rifles, everything made it back to Bombay to Tiger's hideaways in Mumbra and Baikala without detection, despite the customs officers having intel in advance about it. So the next step was training. In total, 19 men were selected and sent in batches to Pakistan via Dubai for training in February. So first they left India for Dubai. Hossein Zaidi writes that Indian dons had this arrangement in Dubai where they were allowed onward travel to Pakistan without any papers or formalities. And so none of these recruits had any papers and that didn't hinder the operation in any way. At Islamabad airport, they were met with a man simply called Jafar Bhai, who was known to Tiger. So Jafar Bhai took all the men through the security and customs lines and no one asked for any information. Actually, I understand corruption, but this is not it. Yeah. None of this could have happened without the tacit support of the government. Uh, No, it's not. So, in Pakistan, they were all taken to an isolated camp in the middle of the jungle. They were given physical training. They were shown how to handle, take apart and reassemble AK-56 rifles, how to throw grenades, how pencil detonators work. And most importantly, how to assemble an RDX bomb. After about 10 days of training, they all came back to Dubai, again paperless, and from there to India. They reached Mumbai on 4th March 1993. After the trip to Pakistan, Tiger recruited five new people who he again trained at the Sandheri Borghat area, which was en route to Masla in Raigarh district. Uh, this is about 250 kilometers away from Mumbai. It's an isolated area. There's just there's just tribals there and they didn't interfere with the training process even though they saw them with guns and all because they were scared. So in the next few days, Tiger narrowed down potential targets in Bombay and he conducted a recce with all the trainees. One person conspicuously absent from all these activities was Gul Noor Muhammad Sheikh or Gulu. It's I love their names, man. I just love it. (laughs) 
like it sort of helps you kind of separate the man from the crime yeah. i don't know whatever anyway so he had been one of the 19 men who had gone to pakistan for training so the thing is before gullu became a part of tiger's diabolical plan he had been involved in the bombay riots he used to live in bairampada which is near bandra it was one of the badly affected areas during the riots gullu's home was burnt during the pogrom many people from the predominantly muslim area were later also harassed by the police there were reports that gullu had been one of the rioters while he was in pakistan the police had visited his home and ultimately taken his brothers into custody to get him to surrender gullu remained conflicted for many days after his return and ultimately decided that the only way to get his brothers released was to confess to the blast plan On 9th March 1993 Gullu walked into the Nirmal Nagar police station and confessed quote unquote to the whole thing he told the policeman bombay ko udane ka plan hai that means there is a plan to blast bombay my hindi is right no yeah Aditi? yeah yeah correct yes so by the way confessed in is in you know as i said giant giant air quotes because it was not a formal confession he was beaten black and blue in the police station that's when he told the police about tiger's plan about how he had been hand picked for the mission about how arms had arrived in mumbai and how he had been taken to pakistan for training the only problem was that gul could not be more specific he had not been present at the meetings where tiger has finalized his targets or where he had taken his men for recce around bombay he could tell the police that major bomb blasts were being planned but he couldn't tell where and when and in an astonishing display of foolhardiness the nirmal nagar police did not believe him there was no official record of his confession either because like we said the confession was not recorded by the police and was obtained under duress gul would stick to his story though and even after he was convicted by a tada court he would formally record his statement in front of a cbi judge in 2006 nobody from the nirmal nagar police station ever faced any inquiry for their bizarre dereliction of duty gulu's confession enraged tiger The initial day of the blast was supposed to be in April on Shiv Jayanti but Gul's confession forced them to change their timelines now the blasts were planned for the 12th just 3 days after Gulu's custody throughout the morning of 12th March Tiger's henchmen had been busy planting bombs all over the city at the Al Husseini building they had been seen by some of the residents loading the explosives into the cars they would talk about this with maria later when he was investigating the buildings which obviously brings us to the memon family since they had been so conclusively linked with the blast they now had to run and make sure they would not be caught by the indian authorities however it is important to understand that not everyone from the family was involved in the blast from everything that we've read apart from tiger his brother ayub was definitely involved because he had received the trainees in dubai and had taken care of them while they were there apparently when tiger's father found out about what his son had planned he 
he had taken out his belt and beaten him black and blue at that time they were in pakistan they had to leave dubai as soon as the news about the car in warli was public even in pakistan they had to change locations again and again after indian authorities found out that they were in pakistan there was a lot of international pressure on pakistanis to hand them over so then the memons were shifted to bangkok in bangkok they were under virtual house arrest but their stay here was temporary as well they had to leave for pakistan again it was this time that yakub memon tiger's younger brother decided enough was enough on 21st july 1994 a man called yusuf mohammed ahmed landed in kathmandu from karachi he stayed in a kathmandu hotel for about 3 days and on 24th july he reached the airport again to board a flight back to karachi at the security check his briefcase was opened and security officials found two passports belonging to him an indian one and a pakistani one as well as passports of all the other members of his family a pakistani national identity card and a large amount of pakistani and us currency the nepal police informed delhi and interpol and they began interrogating yusuf along with the indian police on 5th august 1994 India's Home Minister S.B. Chavan announced that they had managed to arrest Yakub Memon. The CBI story was that Yakub Memon was at the New Delhi railway station from where they arrested him. This is what they told the judge while taking Yakub into custody. However, this is quite bizarre. I mean, why would any member of the Memon family come into India knowing that the government was paying for their blood? Also, how does a member of the Memon family even enter India without setting off alarm bells everywhere? So Yakub Exactly. Yeah. So Yakub tells a different story. So Yusuf Muhammad Ahmed, the man who was arrested by Nepal police in Kathmandu back in July, was Yakub. That was his Pakistani identity. He was traveling under that alias. Hussain Zaidi writes that uh, for a terror suspect, Yakub was strangely calm when he was taken into custody. Again, the question arises: Why would Yakub come to Kathmandu, and why would he travel with such incriminating evidence, knowing that he would definitely be caught? Many people have offered different explanations for this. One was that in Kath- he was in Kathmandu on business, and he simply got caught. The other was that he was sent to Kathmandu to be caught so that he could work on delinking Daud Ibrahim's name from the blasts because by this time the police had figured out the links between Tiger and Daud so while it was becoming increasingly clear that Tiger was behind the blasts the police were also wondering whether it was Daud who was really pulling the strings so the police and CBI believed that Yakub was involved because of his background as a chartered accountant but Yakub's business had been legit unlike his brothers and yakub himself denied any association with his brother's illegal business but large sums of money from nri bank accounts belonging to various members of the memon family had moved around in the days before the blast on 12th march the balance in all these accounts was suddenly very very low indicating that a large withdrawal had been made it should be noted that none of these accounts were in yakub's name or his wife's name but the police believed that such intricate movement of money could only have been planned by someone very well versed with finance someone like yakub yakub on the other hand was distraught in pakistan for himself and his family he wanted to clear his fa- family's name he wanted to make it known that no one apart from tiger were involved in the blasts 
he understood that Pakistan's hospitality was conditional and limited and it came at a price. Their movement was limited and they were always trailed by ISI agents everywhere they went. It was suffocating. He wanted his family to be free and the only way to do that was to cooperate with Indian authorities and prove his brother's role and the hand of Pakistan in the blasts. That is why, at least according to Yaqub, he was in Kathmandu on 21st July. And that is why he allowed himself to be captured on 24th July by Nepalese authorities. He had been very meticulous about this. During June and July of 1994, Yaqub had contacted lawyers about his situation. By this time, uh, the police, they had framed the charge sheet and Yaqub's lawyers had seen it and they assured him that at least based on the charge sheet, only Tiger would face conviction and the rest of the family would at worst get light sentences. So this had inspired some confidence in Yaqub. For the next few days, he gathered as much evidence as he could. In Pakistan, Tiger's main ally was a fellow smuggler called Taufik Jalyawala. He helped them out with travel and stay, and he was also the liaison between them and the Pakistani authorities. He helped them buy a lavish house in Pakistan where the family settled down. Yaqub recorded conversations with Taufik and other known associates of Tiger involved in the blasts. He actually came to India with three cassettes of recorded conversations. We're going to link an India Today report which carries a transcript of one of these tapes where Tiger, Yaqub, Ayub, Taufik and some other people are sitting in a garden during a party and chatting about the blasts. Assuming that the tapes are genuine, they do implicate the ISI in the blasts. Although they say that ISI only knew that the blasts were going to happen and they didn't have any idea about the minute details. During his interrogation, Jakob maintained that only Tiger and Taufik had masterminded the blast and fiercely claimed his own innocence and also that of his family. The Memons were a respectable family in a horrible situation. He was worried about his aging parents exiled from their home and for his pregnant wife, who was due to deliver any minute now. He said that although he had never met Taud, he had heard his name being mentioned. He also got papers to, sorry he also got papers to prove that the whole family had been given new identities in Pakistan and new papers he had also managed to get proof that people in Pakistan had helped with the explosives. We have mentioned earlier how the police were initially highly skeptical of whether Mumbai mafiosi, powerful and rich as they were, would be capable of obtaining thousands of kgs of high-grade explosives, multiple grenades and AK-56 rifles. They knew that the money had come from abroad, but the link with Pakistan was a major one. He told the police that Raza Ashfaq Sarwar, a minister in Pakistan at the time, frequently met Tiger. Tiger also had dealings with people in the military. Taufik had organized the purchase of RDX. Maria had found some cartons in the Al Husseini building labeled Pak Style Packages Limited Lahore Consignee Va Noble, which contained plastic explosives. Va Noble was a company from Va, Pakistan, involved in the manufacture of dynamite, emulsion, and high power powdered high explosives like black powder and PTEN, safety fuses, detonators, blasting equipment, etc. 
So there was evidence to suggest that the explosives were at least manufactured in Pakistan. This was known before Yaqub's revelations, but it had not been sufficient evidence to conclusively link Pakistan with the blasts. Although manufacture and trade of such explosives is highly regulated in every country. If you remember, we had also mentioned that the grenades were labeled Argus 69. So this was a weapons manufacturer in Austria. When inquiries were made by Indian authorities, another link was found within Pakistan. When inquiries were made by Indian authorities, another link was found within Pakistan. This is slightly complicated, but basically, during 1972 to 1975, a company called Ulbrichts Pakistan manufactured and sold HG69 hand grenades in Pakistan. The company claimed to be a joint venture with Ulbrichts Austria. Ulbrichts Austria was the sister concern of Argus. Apparently, this was not true. There had been a licensing agreement for the machines to manufacture hand grenades earlier between Ulbrichts Austria and a Pakistani firm, but it had fallen through. So, it looks like machinery from this deal was used to make the grenades HG69. So, these grenades were made in Austria till 1968. The ones used in the Bombay blast seem to be manufactured by Ulbrichts Pakistan. They were labeled Argus 69, but there were noticeable differences between the grenades originally made by the Austrians and these. The report came through from the Austrian authorities. So all this information coupled with the mine of information provided by Yakub provided massive breakthroughs in the investigation. Yakub was made to appear in a Doordarshan interview in 1994 August where he was interviewed by journalist Madhu Trehan. You really have to listen to the interview. We are going to link the clip on our show notes. It was explosive at the time. Yakub laid bare the entire story of their family post the blast. In the following clip he clearly indicates that Pakistan government was complicit in the blast. to how things happened you went to uh, dubai you went to pakistan yes you seem to have been very comfortable in pakistan very comfortable you lived in a house which the construction alone was 1.16 crores yes you were rehabilitated right? yes yes pakistanis gave you identity cards yes gave you a school certificate Definitely. gave you a second passport yes why would pakistan do this for you because I have concluded that Pakistani agents were involved in this bomb blast. Yes, but why would they do it for you? Because according to them, we were Tiger's family. And Tiger along with them with some with their mutual consent this work was done. So they were supporting Tiger. There are many Agri- there are many criminals all over the world and there are many terrorists all over the world. Yes. But their families are not all taken care of by any financing financing uh, uh, government. but you have been we were Why? supported only because they felt that we are supporting tiger and tiger used to so you must have shown some support to tiger never so how did they come to that conclusion because since he had asked them that my family should be brought here so they thought that he is attached to our family that so way why didn't you, why didn't you protest that time the things were such you know terrible that there was no other alternative to just take mummy daddy and younger brothers 
Only life was the concern. We used to think about our life. That's all. It's very hard to believe that Tiger Maybe Mammon, would. with the kind of arsenals that were found in his in his godowns and every everywhere else, that his family was uh, worrying about their lives. Yes, it is hard to believe right at the moment. Well, but that's what we're I'm talking about. Confident. Nobody is going to believe. I'm that sure everybody will believe when all the facts are with the in front of the people. They will definitely. Well, you have me. stated the facts. You've stated the facts that you. When Trehan asked him why he fled with his family right before the blast to Dubai, and after the blast to Pakistan and Bangkok, and why he accepted Pakistani hospitality and their help with papers, he talks about how he was scared for his family. He says that the family only left in March because of the riots, because they were told that Bombay was not safe. And understand that the fear was realistic, considering how Yakub's office had been gutted. The Memons weren't the only Muslim family to leave Mumbai during this period. You know, even some Hindu families had been displaced, but not at the scale that Muslims were. So we can't speak for Trehan's personal views on Yakub innocence, but she asked the pertinent question. She asked Yakub, how could he not know? Yakub, in all fairness, does not sound convincing. He says he was not sorry. He says he was not close to Tiger, and their lives never intersected. This is just odd, considering that the Memons were a close-knit family. But even if one imagines that Yakub lied, and he did know, and he did have a bl- hand in the blast. Yakub was not charged with the graver offenses of actually participating in planting the blast or masterminding them, but with helping finance them. His co-accused were given much lighter sentences. When a Tada court convicted Yakub, he was sentenced to death. None of his subsequent appeals and mercy petitions were accepted. On 30th July 2015, after spending almost 20 years in prison, Yakub Memon was executed by the Indian state. One wonders what Yakub's fate would have been had he chosen to simply stay in Pakistan. Maybe he would have been alive. Maybe he would have lived to see his daughter grow up. But much like most Muslims in India, Yakub's patriotism was questioned at every turn by the government. Many people were of the opinion that Yakub died to compensate for the government's failure to catch Tiger Memon and several other key persons more actively involved in the blasts. Someone had to die. Right, the collective conscious argument, just like Avzal Guru. Yeah. So Yakub's story is truly heartbreaking. Hossein Zaidi writes about how Yakub remained optimistic about his case till the very end. He knew there was nothing to really link him with the blasts. In a conversation with Zaidi, he speaks of how India was the only country in the world which had Satyamev Jayate as its motto: "Truth alone triumphs." But nothing could be further from reality. On a daily basis in this country, truth of marginalized people is actively denied. We started this episode with Babri Masjid demolition and Bombay riots. All 32 accused. in the babri masjid demolition were acquitted last year including adwani no one spent a day in prison in the bombay riots only 3 hindus were convicted their sentences one year rigorous imprisonment 
Compare that to the plight of Muslims just in Bombay. After the blasts, the police wreaked havoc on the community. Hundreds of people, most of whom were Muslims, were simply taken into custody for connections as remote as they knew someone who knew someone who knew Tiger. No formal arrests were made. There are no official records of people being arrested. So most of them couldn't even prove the atrocities they suffered apart from injuries, courtesy of Bombay police. Women were also not spared. And how they were treated in prison, I mean, I'm going to leave that to your imagination. People had to fight long court battles to get their names cleared, pushing them into poverty. To be fair, some of the people unfairly targeted were also Hindus, but mostly, overwhelmingly, they were Muslims. This is the somber note on which we will leave you today. Please get the book Black Friday to read about this phase in India's history in greater detail. Please listen to Yaqub's interview. And if you have the time, do read the Liberhan Commission report on Babri Masjid demolition and the Sri Krishna Committee report. So this has been an insane month, right? Oh my God, so much research, so much reading. What a month, what a goddamn month. Yeah. So we have just one more episode left in this series uh, where we are going to tie up loose ends regarding Daud Ibrahim, Tiger Memon, generally the fallout from the investigation into the blasts and the state of the mafia after that. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me just finish with a few housekeeping points. As you all know, you know where to listen to us. And wherever you listen to us, please hit the follow button if you listen so that you are updated as soon as we upload something new and if you listen to us on apple podcasts please please click the subscribe button so that you'll be updated you can also leave us a review and a rating and you know we'll share every review and rating that you've given to us and we are very transparent negative positive suggestions everything everything is welcome you can also follow us on youtube please, please, please follow us on YouTube and all on our socials. All of them, uh, we'll put links in our uh, show notes. And also, if you noticed, our socials are looking a little bit brighter these days. What do you say, Aditi? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Kirtana. She's uh, helped us a lot with the remodeling of everything. So let us know what you think. Thank her as well. And uh, that's it for this week. Uh, oh, oh! in case you want to donate something for us or buy us a biryani, we'll put links down to those as well. You can buy we, you can buy us biryani either on ko-fi.com or on instamoja.com and it'll be really, really helpful. Our merch is still there. So that's it for this week. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye.